Well, I know it's getting uh, close to Christmas time, so I know some of you are thinking, um, you know, what, you know, what's the gifts I should get? So I'm actually going to help you this morning. I've got some uh, gifts that I did a little research on. Um, and some of you like jewelry, and so this uh, first item is this uh, jewelry. It's um, more than this, by the way. Um, it's it's not just this, it's in a bracelet, two brooches, necklace, and also a tour in Paris where this was was made, and uh, it's just for $695,000. So, you know, wives, that's what you're really interested in. Uh, make sure you jot that down. Um, yeah, the whole thing, you get all of those pieces, not just one. Um, some of you may, you know, want a car, and so there's this Aston Martin car. Um, it's the one that James Bond drives, and uh, and it's uh, seven hundred thousand um, dollars. By the way, you don't just get the car for seven hundred thousand dollars; you also get a watch. So you know, you get the watch, and by the way, not just the watch. For seven hundred thousand dollars, you also get two tickets to the next James Bond film. So. I mean, come on, right? Um, maybe some of you want to go on a little vacation, you know? Well, you can go on vacation by private jet. And you can go to, you'll be going to five places, staying three days, three nights, uh, four days in each place. It's uh, Morocco, Italy, Sweden, St. Lucia. And, and then you end up in, in Utah and you're staying at all these uh, more than five-star resort areas. And uh, this little trip will just be a bargain at $575,000. Now, with some trepidation, I'm going to show you this last one because my wife might actually want to get it because it wouldn't be for her, it would be for our dog, okay? <laughs> Apparently, you can get a dog house for $70,000, yes. Um, I never know when Neiman Marcus puts out this list if there, anybody ever actually buys them, if they're actually serious about it, or it's just a way to generate interest in their more reasonably priced things. But it's funny how we can put big prices on, on things, and some people might be going, yeah, that's worth it. You know, my dog needs that. Or, you know, that trip sounds really good. There's this, this high price. And, and you know, we... It's funny because we're not, uh, the price we put on things doesn't always kind of go along with the need we have for it. It's, it's funny, we, we will highly value things that we don't really need. And then things that we really need, we, we kind of undervalue for, for different reasons, various reasons. We just sang this song, The Love of God, which is this great hymn that talks about, about the love of God and, and about how you have the you know, that if, if, if every person in the world was a scribe and, and every stock that we had could be used as a pen and, and the oceans were ink, that we wouldn't be able to really just even begin to write about the love of God. It's that valuable. But for some reason, we don't really value it that way, I think, in, in, in our lives. In some ways, we take it for granted. And yet it's what the world needs most. 
What the world needs most is to be transformed by the gospel in such a way that our nature is this love of God. And we think from our perspective sometimes that, that, oh yeah, we think it's valuable, we'll sing these songs about it, but do we really think it's valuable? I can almost guarantee you that if you bought the jewelry for 600 plus thousand dollars, I'm pretty sure you would, you know, you would take care of it. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't just, you know, you know, just throw it in the seat of your car while you're, you know, while you're going out shopping because, you know, it gets in the way or, or whatnot. You would take care of it. You would think it's valuable. You might not even keep it in your house. That's how valuable it is. But God's love, I think we sometimes don't value it. We take it for granted. The world kind of talks about love, but it only talks about love kind of in a secondary way. You know, what, what the world is much more concerned about is, is, is power and, and winning. So once I win, then I'll love. You know, but we got to win first. And then when we win, we can control things and then we can let love come in. And that's really not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of Jesus Christ. It's not win first, then love. In fact, we see this embodied in Jesus Christ himself. Wouldn't that have made more sense if we were there and, you know, we were asked for our input into God's plan? Wouldn't we have said, um, okay, why don't we send Jesus down and then, you know, let him take over. Let him, you know, show how powerful, you know, God is and let him take over. And then when he takes over, you know, then when he conquers any, any you know, enemies, anybody, when he does all that, then from that position of strength and safety and comfort, he can then say, guys, we need to love one another. No, what does he do? Comes and he dies. It wasn't win first, then love. It was love. And again, we even in the church sometimes we, we get this backwards. We we think like, you know, we gotta get to a certain point, and when we get to that certain point, then we'll love then we'll really care about one another. But only when we get to that point. And of course, most of the time we never get to the point. What the world needs has this high, high price tag. And we see this price that, that's, that's attached to it, paid by Jesus Christ. So Paul writes, you know, you're bought with a price. And if God values something that much, we should also. We shouldn't think like it's a secondary thing. It's the, it's the thing to add when, when there, you know, there is like, you know, everything's kind of okay. It's like, no, it's, it's first. It's most important. It's second. It's third. It's all the time. 
And so, you know, we, we, we've been talking about this, as we've been talking about what a healthy church is. And what a healthy church is, is a, is a church that's marked by God's love. We talked about a healthy church being a community of disciples, and it is. But what disciples are learning is they're learning more and more about what it means to not just be a follower of Christ, but what it means to actually have Christ live in them. They're also learning about how they express the Christ in me and the Christ in you to one another in the community of faith. That's a healthy church. And one of the ways we see it is we see, we see God's love abounding. The, the problem is, is that if we stop being disciples, if we're kind of halfway disciples or you know, as we talked about this morning, you know, you got the basics, but you haven't got anything beyond that. If that's, if that's what your understanding is, then what you're going to do is if you take this message that, that a, a church, a, a community of, of, of disciples should love one another, you're going to redefine love. And this was said about not our church, but a different um, Christian community that I was a part of. And it was not a compliment, it was a criticism. It said, the problem with this, with this place is that, is that it's paralyzed by a culture of niceness. See, when you mistake love for niceness, something happens. Oh, you can have a nice gathering. You can have people that, 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 that get along. You can have a nice experience. But you're not going to grow. You're not going to develop. You're not going to become more like Christ because that means, as we talked about last week, that when iron sharpens iron, iron doesn't always like it. It's not always about being nice. It's about pushing one another sometimes. Pushing one another to, to become more like Christ. Sometimes pulling Sometimes carrying. But our goal is the same. That we as a community become more and more and more like Christ. We more and more and more are able to show God's love. Not just being nice. Not just making our goal just to get along. And if as, as individuals or as a church we always want to avoid the hard things. We want to avoid the tough conversations. That means that we're, we're never going to, to move. We're just going to be paralyzed by a culture of niceness and mistake it for love. That's why Jesus says, and James says, and John says, and Paul says, they all say, when you go to the world and you live like Christ and you bring the message of Christ, the world's going to hate you. What are you going to do if your understanding of love is niceness? Are you going to keep just nicing them? If they're disagreeing with you, are you at, are you at any point going to disagree with them? Are you at any point going to say, yeah, I respect your opinion, but you're wrong. Because nice people don't do that. 
Nice people just let people be and do whatever they want and believe whatever they want. I'm glad my doctor's not nice. I'm glad he'll tell me when there's something wrong. Oh, I don't want to hurt his feelings. Mm, not going to say anything. No, tell me, please. I want to know. And so we come to this text. And again, it's John's letters often are read as these ooey-gooey letters about love. And I hope you understand that that's just not true. He's dealing with this serious problem in the church that threatens the church. It's this false teaching that's coming in. And he's trying to deal with it. And he's, and he's trying to help the people who are there understand how they can know truth. And so in verse 16, he says this. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So when we, when we look at this, we, we, we see this first two couple words, this word's by this, right? This word by this. So when we see the words by this, we, we, we have to ask, what does he mean by this? And, and the first thing that, he, that he's talking about, the primary thing he's talking about is what he's about to say. He says, you want to know love? You want to know what love is? Well, think about what Jesus did. Because what Jesus did, that's your picture of love. What did he do? He laid down his life. He laid down his life for you. That's the picture. Paul says the same thing. Jesus says the same thing. I lay down my life. Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Laid down his life. But he's also doing something else here. He's connecting it in a different way to what we just what we just read in the previous verses. And if, if you have your Bibles, you can back up a little bit if you, unless you have incredible memory and you remember all the things that I said last week. But just last week, he, he was talking about, you know, that, that, that what's in our nature, there are certain things that, that just won't go together. If Jesus Christ is in your life, and Jesus Christ is, is what is good and what is love and, 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 and he is the life giver, how can you be a murderer? How can you say Jesus Christ is in my life and Jesus Christ is love and you can be someone who hates? How can you say Jesus Christ is in my life and he is the righteous one and you can be unrighteous? John's saying, how can this be? Again, he's not talking about being perfect. Remember, he's the same guy who said, you cannot say you're sinless. If you do, then you're a liar and you make God a liar. But he's just said that in these previous verses. And so he's connecting this. He's connecting what, what, what comes from the evil one, what comes from um, this life of, of outside of God, outside of Christ. He's, he's contrasting that with 
what happens when Christ is in your life. And he's saying, look over here. You know what ends up over here? If you're over here, you are a taker. You will, you will take life. It's primarily about you. If you understand that whole idea of survival of the fittest, survival of the fittest rarely means I go, you know, Eric's more fit than me. So you know what? He can kill me. It's cool. No. He's going to have to prove it. He's going to have to prove it. We're going to have to go at it to who's the fittest, right? So for me to prove I'm the fittest, I got to take from someone else. To prove that I'm the most powerful, I got I to gotta take from someone else. That's how the world works. And he contrasts that with Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus isn't the life taker. Jesus is the life giver. And he begins by giving his own life. He gives his own life. And, and John is just asking this question. He's saying, how can this be love? How can love be epitomized in Jesus Christ, the ultimate life giver? And you say you possess this love and you're a life taker. You're someone who, who is driven by, by constantly showing that, that you're better or you're more powerful or that, that, that you know, you're number one, you're the winner. That it's about you and your existence and your survival. Because how can those two things be together? And he's asking this question. He says, they don't, they don't go together. It's this, it's this principle that for John should be something that we all get. That Jesus gave his life. Jesus gave his life so that he might give us life. Jesus gave his life so that he might give us life. That's what love looks like. Jesus didn't give his life for his own benefit. Remember, Jesus is the Son of God. He needs nothing. He's not benefiting in the way that it's like, oh, something he didn't have. He gives his life so that he might give us life. And this is, you know, this is the problem that, that's, you know, that's always been around. <clears throat> it's just that before people just accepted alternatives. Now, younger and younger generations, they're not accepting the alternatives anymore. You know, before people would just accept, like, some reason to live. Oh, live for this, live for that. You know, and sometimes they didn't even have to have a reason. They just did it. Everybody else was doing it. Everybody else was going to college. Or everybody else was, was starting a career or joining the military. I just did it. Just kept going. Whatever. You know, never slowed down enough to ask why. 
And if there were these moments when I did ask why, I would, you know, accept something. Maybe it was I wanted to earn money. Maybe it was I wanted to have a good retirement. Maybe it was I wanted to provide for my family. But what's happening more and more is those things don't satisfy. You know, people who are in this postmodern generation, people that aren't accepting all the, the constructs that we had in the past that we just accepted unquestioningly, they, they don't. And it's not always a bad thing because some of the structures we trusted in, we shouldn't have trusted in, but we did. But it leaves them in this place where if they don't accept all those reasons we accepted for doing things, they're not left with anything. And all that I can tell them, I can tell them this. If you just live for yourself, and you reject all these other reasons for living and you just live for yourself and you find that that is empty and it doesn't have any meaning and that's what you're insisting on doing, I can't tell you anything else. But I can tell you this, I can tell you that the meaning that transcends all other meaning is that you, is that you have a purpose that's higher it's higher than yourself. It's higher than all of these other constructs. I don't live in this world for my benefit. It doesn't mean I don't benefit. I'm not some you know, monk who, you know, just in this thing of self-denial. It doesn't mean I don't benefit. But that's not why I'm here. I don't do things for, for my personal glory. And if I understand that, that gets me through so many times when I would rather give up. It gets, me, it gets me through so many times and it's like not getting the progress, not getting the, the results that I want. And, and so, you know, why try? We keep trying because it's not about me. It's not about my personal ambitions. It has to be more than that. And you might go, that's hard to do. It is hard to do. In fact, matter of fact, it's impossible. There's no way I hold on to that on my own. I only hold on to that because it's something that came to, to me when I became a Christian. What I understood Christianity was, was it wasn't just about me staying out of hell. It wasn't just about me having a, a new life and having purpose and joy. Those things were all true and they were all there and it was all good. But I realized from when I was young that I wasn't saved just to be saved. God saved me. He brought me in, poured the Spirit into my life so that I might serve others. So that I might serve him so that I might spread his kingdom. And you might go, yeah, 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 because you're a pastor. I've only been a full-time pastor for four years now. Whether I was a journalist, which I was many, many years ago when I had hair, whether I was a journalist, whether I worked at the University of Hawaii, whether I was a school teacher, 
whether I worked in a school administration, when I was a professor, no matter what I did, whatever I was doing, whether it was considered a secular job or a ministry job, it was always for the same reason. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying that that's what gets me through. And I'm saying that for, for those of us who, who don't know. They don't know why. They're like, why should I keep learning? Why should I keep growing? Why should I be, keep coming more like Christ? I don't have any effect on people. My kids are grown. Nobody sees me. I hang around with church people. Why should I? Why should I? Why should I? It's not for you. It's not for you. If you think it's for you, I don't know what to tell you. I could just say, well, you're right. There is no reason. There is no reason. If you've decided I've got enough Jesus, I've got enough goodness, I've got enough you know, spirituality, enough maturity, and that's going to last me for the rest of my life, and your life is about you, I, I can't tell you any compelling reason to do anything else. But if you understand that Christianity is not about you, that it's about God using you, then you're going to hunger and thirst to know more so that you can help more, you can serve more, you can love better. You don't know younger generations, and for some of you, younger generations are people in their 60s. But understand, you don't know that if younger generations are looking at you and asking the question, how does a faithful Christian finish? How do they finish? Maybe they're asking, at what time do I retire from being a really serious about my faith? And they're looking at you. Parents who still have kids in your home, it's the same thing. You might not think that, that they care. You might not think when they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're like, how's your day? You might not think that they're interacting, but they're watching you. Their lives are being shaped by how you live your life. It matters. It's not just about us. And so John is trying to keep getting the people back to this idea of, of love, but not the world's idea of love. And he says, Jesus laid down his life. So what does love mean? What does God's love mean? God's love means that we will die for our fellow Christians. Not be willing to die. He says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We will die. And see, we, we on certain level, don't you know, we haven't had this tested. Most of us have never been in a, in a, in a life-threatening situation where it's either, it's either protect your fellow Christian's life or give your life. And we've never been in that situation, and we can't even fathom it. And so we, we don't know 
what this is about, but we want to say, like, you know, I'd be, I'd be willing. But we really don't know. But see, here's the point James is going to make. And it's why he's saying, lay down your life. Not someday lay down your life, but lay down your life right now. And the reason he's saying it is what he says next. He says, if, if you have the world's goods and you see your brother in need and you close your heart against him, how can you say that this love that would die for them won't give them food? How can you say that this love that says, I will sacrifice my life for them, won't give them an hour to sit down and talk to them and help them through a problem? How can you say you have that high of a love that you're willing to pay that price of your life like Jesus did, but you won't pay a much less amount for someone when they're in need? You see, if I were to ask, and we did this on Wednesday night when we were doing this Bible study, if I were to ask, how many of you have ever been in a situation where it was you realized you might have to very well risk your life to save you know, a, a fellow Christian? Not put yourself in danger, but actually risk your life to save a fellow Christian. Nobody in the room said, I've been in that situation. But then I asked this question, how many people... In your, in, your life, in your lifetime have been in a situation where a brother or sister in Christ in your church has been in need? Everybody. Everybody. John isn't saying, wait someday. Wait someday until really, really, really persecution comes on the church. Then be ready to stand up. He's saying, Right now, every day, there are brothers and sisters in Christ in need. And you can help them. Do it. Lay down your life. Give your time. Give your resources. Give your expertise, your experience. See, we, we like it when it's like this super high price. You know, <clears throat> I would love if my wife said, you know, any of those five gifts you talked about, that'd be fine for Christmas. I'd love for her to say that. Because it ain't happening. Right? Much worse if it was something that's actually affordable. Oh, make it that. And so we like when the price seems so high. But sometimes the price is five minutes here, five minutes there. Sometimes the price is a little shift in my judgmental attitude and more about trying to connect and reach out to people. Sometimes it's sharing a meal, sharing some coffee with somebody. 
It's giving of our life in bits and pieces rather than all at once in a lump sum. Again, if, if I told you know, my wife, if, my, if our wedding vows were something like this, I have enough love for the rest of my life for you. I'm going to give it to you in the first six months. You're going to get all the love for my whole life, for the first six months, and then, you know, after that, whatever. She'd be an idiot for, I mean, people still think she's an idiot for marrying me, but she'd really be an idiot for marrying me, right? Really be. But that's how we are in the church. Oh, you know, when, when something really bad happens, you know, somebody dies, we're going to go and we're going to pour a bunch of love. All the love we should have been showing for the last three months, six months, five years, ten years. We're going to show it all right when somebody dies. Or right when somebody gets married. Or right when you know, somebody is sick. Then we're going to do it. We're going to pour it all out. Instead of a little bit here, a little bit there. All along the way. That's what John is saying. He's saying you see your brothers and sisters in need every day. Every day. He's saying, if you really are willing to lay down your life, if you really love that way, then you would give the high price of your life and everything less. Anything less, you'd be willing to give that too. You can't say, I'll give you my car, but I won't loan you a dollar. That doesn't make sense. If you're willing to give your life, you're willing to give that and everything less. And I know why we don't do it. Because what's attractive about giving our lives is if I'm dealing with someone that I don't particularly like or it's hard, it's like if I give my life, then I'm done, right? But if I give a little help today, I'm not done. I still got to show up tomorrow. I got to show up the next day and the next day. And, and we don't, we just like, I, I can't possibly love that long. You know, give me one grand big moment and then boom, I'm done, I'm in heaven. But to ask me to love a little every day with people that I don't necessarily get along with or don't have anything in common with or it's kind of awkward or weird or I just don't like them. That's really hard to do for some of us. Laying down our lives. Everything less. You see, love and loving the way God loves means that we're that we'll share all we have. All we have with our fellow Christians in need. And someday, it's going to extend. And as I told you the last few weeks, the reason I think the Bible tells us focus on the brothers and sisters in Christ is because this is like, this is like level one. This is like elementary school. Get it right here. And then you can go graduate to the harder things like loving strangers 
and loving enemies. But let's get it right here. Let's get it right where we can at least just love each other. We can at least meet each other's needs. It's testimony. It's a testimony to the world of what happens when, when God gets a hold of people's lives and brings them together. And if one of the comments about our church is that, wow, that's a place where you know, people's needs are met, it's a great thing. It's a big thing. Jesus says it's one of the main standards for judging. And John uses this phrase. He says, not just that you don't help them. Because we're all going to do that. Sometimes we're not going to help for different reasons. Sometimes we're not going to help because maybe the way we were going to help wasn't the best way to help. Or, or maybe um, you know, we don't have the means to help them. We don't understand how to help them. Or maybe we just missed it. Maybe we just you know, got it wrong. But notice the standard, he says. It's not whether we helped or not. He said, you close and the way the English translates it is your heart. The original Greek says, you closed your bowels. You closed inside where you could, you could, you could see someone in need and not feel moved to want to help them, even if you couldn't. You've closed off where it's like, too bad for them. Or, you know what? I had to find my own way. They should have to find their own way. You know what? If they wanted a better parking space, they should come earlier. If they want this pew, they need to come five minutes earlier. And when they do, I'm coming ten minutes earlier, right? It's like, it's like hey, we close our heart to people in need. If we say, you know, people can't hear, people can't understand, oh, too bad for them. I mean, I will tell people if they, you know, they tell me they can't hear what I'm saying. It's like, if you can't hear what I'm saying and you're sitting in the back pew, well, move up. Just like my students in class who complained about how cold it was because they sat by the air conditioner. Like, well, move. There is something you can do. That's not closing my heart. I'm trying to help you. But there's a lot of times when we're just like, hey, too bad for them. And a lot of times it's because we don't, have any, we don't have any way of understanding what they're going through. I think I've told you guys this before, but when I worked at Hawaii Baptist Academy and when I was the, uh, main, the, the institutional advancement director and I was helping with fundraising and most of the people who are donors from the mainland were older people, you know, I realized from those situations and talking to them, some things I never would have realized before. And it often came in the form of complaining, which is fine. You know, it's, you know, I would rather just say, let's talk about it. But no, there's complaining. And one of the guys was complaining, and I'm glad he did, because it kind of helped me. He was like, you know what, I can't stand in church. I can't stand in church when the pastor starts praying, and the piano player starts playing music underneath the pastor's prayer. 
And I'm like, what's wrong with that? What's the big deal? Because I didn't understand. What's happening as you age is your, it's the ability to distinguish sounds becomes more difficult. That, it's not that you're necessarily losing your hearing. If it's just losing your hearing, we just turn it up. But you can't distinguish sounds. And so when someone is talking and someone is playing music, the, the, the sounds, they just mush together. But it was helpful because now I'm like, okay. I think about that. When I then made slideshows for them about HBA, I always made sure that when the narrator was speaking, there was no music. I can accommodate. We can help. We can understand. But if I had the attitude, hey, too bad for you, I hear perfectly. It's okay. I can see. I, don't know, I didn't know what it was like to be that age and to go through what they were going through. Because we make the same mistake with, with people as they age that we make with people when they're, when they're children. We think of children as many versions of us. And we think of people who are older than us as older versions of us. And so we can't understand. Love means we want to understand their needs. And if God has given us the resources, we want to help meet their needs. And the more somebody is different from me, the more I got to work to understand their needs. Because I can't assume their needs are the same as my needs. And so, when we love, we, we share everything. And we tend to just think of things. I mean, John is talking about the world's goods, but it's really more than just things. Love means that we will take action, or at least there is a desire in our heart to take action, to meet someone else's needs. And we will look to do the most we can do, not the least we can do. And we will do it until the job is done. I love the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. Because the Good Samaritan didn't do like, oh, I just stop and I'll bandage up the wounds and hey, that's cool. Somebody else can take care of them. The job wasn't done. This guy needed care. So he went out of his way. He took time out of his own journey and, and he took him to the inn so he would be protected and cared for. But the job still might not have been done. So he said, here's some money. Anything else this guy needs, you know, get it for him. And when I come back, if that money's not enough, I'll bring more. He helped until the job was done. Some of us are happy that we help it all. Oh yeah, you know, I, you know, we're going to next step shelter, and some people are happy that, you know, I, I met a need. Well, you helped meet a need, but the job's not done. We help until the job is done. And, you know, this gets into this area that we get kind of uncomfortable with. Because there's a sense where we understand that the job is never done. 
And that's because we still think about this like just me. I can't possibly meet everybody's needs. You're right, you can't. You can't. But that's why John is talking to the church. Church, you together meet each other's needs, whether they be material, psychological, emotional, relational, whatever those needs are, meet each other's needs. That's what a healthy church does. That's what love does. It gets us into this, this, this situation where we're like, well, are you telling me I should just be like the rich young ruler, like Jesus told him, and just sell everything? Not necessarily. You see, we live in this world, and we live in our, in our culture, in our churches now, where, where you, know, you could sell everything back then. You could sell everything back then if you were part of, a, of the healthy church because it said they sold everything and they had it in common and they met each other's needs. But if you go oh, Lone Ranger and do it all on your own, if you really trust us, <laughs> we'll take care of you. Maybe you should. But there's still this call to give. There's still this call to meet needs. And I'll give you these three levels of giving. One is when we give from things that we don't need. I got an extra this, I'll give it. I got some extra money, I'll give it. It's not what I need. And that's the first level of giving. And most of us are cool with that. We can do that. And then the next level is sacrificial giving. And sacrificial giving... Is, is, when we, is when we give out of stuff that we do need. Not stuff that we just want, like, oh, instead of a Honda Accord, I'm going to buy a Kia, and so I'm going to give the money I saved to you know, help somebody because I took a lesser car. No, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about, you know, I'm not going to go to Starbucks and spend $5 on coffee. I'm going to use that $5 to you know, give to people in need. By the way, if you want to do that, those are all great things, but you're not giving sacrificially, okay? Although some people go, if I don't have my coffee from Starbucks, it is a sacrifice. Um, not really. But most of us don't get to the level of giving sacrificially because we're conditioned not to. We don't give out of what we need. We only give from what we don't need. Which means if we don't get to level two, we never get to level three. Level three is you give unconditionally. You just keep on giving without regard to whether you need it or not. It, again, the idea here is not that we would all do this. The idea is is it even inside of you to say, I wish I could. I wish I could help. When I was in Kenya, I mean, I, I went to <clears throat> the tea and coffee farms. And when I got there, you know, I went to the first you know, house that I went to. And it wasn't much of a house at all. And there was a woman there living on her own because her husband had been killed because um, 
during the elections, there was a lot of violence in Kenya. And, and you know, they had nothing, you know, dirt floors, all this stuff, you know, and, and, and you know, I'm there with the pastor and we're talking to her. And I just wanted to give her all the money I had in my pocket right then. It's like, there's such need. And then we go to the next house. It's the same thing. And then the next house. And we didn't go to every house, but when we backed up, there's rows and rows and rows of houses, and that's one plantation. I couldn't meet their needs, but I know something inside of me wanted to. And I thank God that it was there. I thank God that I didn't walk away like so many people do. And if you ever go on a mission trip, you think this, you don't, do not say this to me and do not share this in front of the church. But I would hear people come back from places like Kenya and places like Haiti and places like and places in South America. And you know what their takeaway was? Makes me grateful I'm an American. Makes me grateful for all the things I have. That was your takeaway? Your takeaway wasn't, God has blessed me. I'm going to pour as much as I can to help these people. That wasn't your takeaway? So if you ever go on a trip and you have those thoughts, keep them to yourself, okay? Because that's telling me what should have been is there was such overwhelming need and I wanted to help all that I could and now I'm constantly vexed by how much I can help. How can I help from where I am right now? Because that tells me God's love is right there. It's right there in your life. And his ultimate, his ultimate point is that disciples put love into action. They don't just talk about love. They don't just understand it, but they put it into action. Make no mistake, you need words. The gospel needs words. But the gospel needs more than words. The gospel needs to be lived out, and it's seen and lived out when people see God's love. And we've talked about this before, but there's a difference between love and the expressions of love, and we get it wrong sometimes when we confuse the two, and, and we just have to understand that as Christians, our nature is to love. We, sh we shouldn't have any question of whether we should love or not. It should be like breathing. But how we show that love, that's where the struggle comes in. And that's where we sometimes get it wrong. But make no mistake, if you have God's love in you, it will come out in your actions. It's not just loving actions. It is an active love. Some practical things to think about. Before you can meet someone's need, you actually need to know what the need is. Sometimes it's obvious. Someone is starving, they need food. Sometimes not so obvious. We then must know, you know ways that we can actually meet the need. And as I said, we meet the need until the need is gone. And that seems impossible. 
It seems like that's beyond our ability, beyond our resources. I don't even want to think about that because if I do, I'm going to get overwhelmed. And you know what? If that's the case, then you're exactly where you need to be. Because it is at that moment when you are so desirous to, to help and to love and to meet needs, and you're right at that moment and you realize it's well beyond your resources that when you cry out to God and He provides a way, you will know it was him and it wasn't you. And that's the most important lesson we take from this. We never get to this place because we've adopted that the goal of life is to help people from a position of safety and comfort. And so God will intervene. God will intervene, and He'll intervene, and He'll help us do the impossible. He may do the impossible without us, but the impossible gets done. And sometimes His intervention means He'll change our hearts. He'll change our hearts so that we're no longer trying to love by human effort, which we know will fail, but we will love until the end. He'll intervene by giving us faith and wisdom. And if we don't get the faith and wisdom, He'll bring people into our lives who have the faith and wisdom. And we'll know what to ask for. And then He intervenes by providing. This is it. This is why true Christianity, this is why when love takes hold of our heart, it's scary. Because it leads us to scary places. And even when you're doubting, even when you're not sure, understand this, that if you truly are a Christian, if you've truly been changed, if you have God's Holy Spirit, know this, you cannot close your heart. You can't. It's impossible for you to close your heart. And you know why? Because you're not the one opening it. Jesus is the one who opened it. He's the one who can close it. And he's not going to do that. So do we believe it or not? Do we believe in the high price of love? Do we believe that we were bought with this high price of the very life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Do we live in his resurrection power? Is His Spirit indwelling our lives? Do we have a new heart, new creation? If we do, if we believe His resurrection power opened our hearts, there's no way we can close it. It's a high price of love. Not so much what it costs us, even though it will cost us, but the value that God put on it.